Open up to Romans chapter 8 as we go through this glorious... I've grabbed the wrong device. This glorious passage. Uh, we've come to the last sermon in Romans 8, which has been a uh, very powerful, uh, amazing chapter. I, I know it's not the first time you would have read it, but uh, what a blessing it's been to go through it. If, if you're new tonight, we're very glad that you're here. Uh, if you're looking for a church, I, I pray that you uh, find a group of people that love you, that are very welcoming, and uh, you will see that we just go line by line through the scriptures. That is, that is the way that God has, uh, has uh, granted and promised to bless us as we understand his word. And so we've been doing that through Romans chapter 8. Last week... We have, uh, uh, we, we ended in verse 34, and tonight we pick up in verse 35. But verse 34, uh, uh, one sentence in, starts like this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Let me hear an Amen. That is a glorious, that is the foundation of every other truth that we believe, every blessing that we receive, every promise that God gives finds its answer and finds its power in that main kernel of truth that Jesus Christ, the God-man, come, uh, God himself, God the Son, became the God-man in our flesh, like us but not sinful, so that he might pay the penalty for our sin on the cross of Calvary where he died, he perished, he was buried and then rose victoriously and gloriously, triumphant over death to reign forever and until the end of time be saving sinners through the merits of his own blood. And he now sits ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand and verse 34 tells us he is there interceding for us. Jesus Christ is the one who died, that is our hope. He's the one who more than died for us, he rose, therefore sealing our eternal life. And more than that, if there could be more, he is now with the Father, interceding. Now, this is where we ended last week. We, we considered this glorious, beautiful, wonderful truth, that the reason there is such a thing as Romans 8, 28 through 30, the reason there is a golden chain of redemption. That is to say, the reason that saints who have been elected and called will be justified and will be glorified, the reason we will not be lost is because Jesus is sitting at God's right hand, ruling and reigning, but also praying for us. God does not turn away or say no to a single one of Jesus' prayers because he prays on the basis of his infinitely pleasing sacrifice that was made to God. And, and we, we recounted and remembered what, what it is that Jesus prays, what, what the content of his prayers are. And we could say threefold, as we repeat last week, what Jesus prays for is that God would receive and accept the merits of his Atonement. It's not at all the case that the Father needs to have his arm twisted towards this end, and yet we see that it is the case that just as the high priest of the Old Testament would make a sacrifice and then ask God, according to your promise, according to your word, according to what you've said, we made the sacrifice, may you receive it and give us the blessing, so also Jesus prays. On the basis of the merits of his atonement, he prays that it would be applied to us, and that's the second thing. That all of the blessings that Jesus purchased at the cross for us, forgiveness of sins, an infilling of the Holy Spirit, adoption into God's family, and every other blessing besides, Jesus prays to the Father that in the 
full unity and communion and agreement of their, of their mind that, that the Father would willingly give to everybody who comes to Jesus all of the blessings that Jesus purchased for them. And so he does. And the third thing that we've seen that uh, we recounted that Jesus prays for, this brings us into the on-ramp of tonight's discussion, is that Jesus prays, according to Hebrews 7, the basis of the, 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 one of the main contents of his prayer is that he prays that our faith not fail and therefore that we would be and continue to be faithful or conquerors in and through his blood. So, so Jesus is there praying to the Father that we would be sustained, that the Father would protect us from whatever would destroy us, that he would keep us from whatever would take away our faith, that he would preserve and protect us to the end of our life, that we might find ourselves in the, in, in the arms of Jesus upon death. That is what Jesus prays. That is what the Father says, a resounding amen and yes to I know we come into tonight's verse. Look at verse 35. <clears throat> Therefore, basically, you can imagine him saying, since Jesus, the one who died and rose and now reigns, since that Jesus intercedes for us, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Verse 36. As it is written, he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, just to show it's always been the case that the saints of God have suffered greatly. He quotes it and says, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. The Greek could come out as, we are super exceedingly conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God bless this in our midst this evening. God loves you in Christ with an inseparable, indestructible, eternal, powerful, unending love. And Jesus prays on that basis. If Jesus is praying for me, then you sort of read that list and go, what an impressive list. And then you remember what Paul is comparing it to. The love of Jesus that came and died and bled and was buried and rose and reigns and now prays for us. And you think, what a, what a pathetic little list this is. Paul, who wrote this, he, he lived this. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, towards the end of his life, the last epistle that he wrote, he's, he's naked. He's cold. He's basically all butt naked. He's in tattered clothing in a Roman prison, a, a dank little, uh, a little, little stone cell underneath the ground. He's alone. He's been betrayed by other Christians and left alone by false Christians. He's, he's lonely. He, he, you could say, or we would be tempted to say, therefore, sad and depressed, but not the case. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he writes, from this little cell, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew well what he is writing to us tonight. And this is the, this is the main 
theme and the main emphasis, as Thomas Wilcox, the Puritan, wrote, we must never look around us at our circumstances and on that basis make conclusions about God's love for us. You must never, it is a tendency, it is a danger to ever look around you and think, well, these things are happening in my life, ergo, the equation seems to point to the fact that that is how much God loves me then. Now, the reason that's dangerous is because both Christians and non-Christians can get swept up into this danger. Some of you are unbelievers. You've not placed your faith and thrown your sins and cast your burdens into the safe refuge of Jesus Christ, and therefore you're going to hell when you die. And your danger is that you look around you and say, I don't don't know, shining sun, well-to-do family, clothing, food, wine, sex, family. What else do I need to list? It seems like God loves me just the way I am. He has a wonderful plan for my life. So do I. And heaven will probably be next. Now, that's dangerous because you're under momentary blessing awaiting eternal destruction. But the same is the case of the Christian, that it is equally as misleading to look around you and look at the difficulties, the trials, the persecutions, the distresses, the blessings that you feel like you lack, the ways that your life compares to other people and say, well, that must be an an indicator of how little God loves me. Never do that. You are under momentary suffering leading towards eternal blessing. Thomas Wilcox said it this way. He said, judge not Christ's love by providences, but by promises. By providence, maybe that's a new word to providence. By providence, we mean that doctrine by which God controls every single event that will ever happen to anybody throughout all of history. God is in complete control of everything that has ever happened to you. So the sun shines or it rains or you, you stub your toe or you get in a, death, uh, a near-death experience. Any of them will be called providences what God brought about in your life. And here's what Thomas Wilcox is saying. Never judge or make a conclusion about Christ's love for you on the basis of the providences that he brings to your life. If Jesus did that, then he would rightly conclude that God hated him. Because he was abandoned upon a cross to die with no friends. No, don't judge Christ's love to us by providences, but by the promises. And that's why Romans 8 is so powerful. Whatever is going on in your life, you look at Romans 8 and you remember the promises of God in Christ for us. And then whatever else comes, you can say confidently, I am more than a conqueror. So we come to this passage and we need to ask, what does it mean that I, as a Christian, am a conqueror? Does it mean... Romans 8 is just so chock full of awesome promises that it's easily hijacked and twisted. Like, so, so, in other words, I type in a quote from Romans 8, and multiple times over the last few weeks, the first response that Google gives me is a Joel Osteen article. A devotional by, if you don't know him, one of the world's worst and well-known prosperity preachers that, that God loves you so nothing bad will happen to you if you give the right amount of money and if you're a child of God, then only God's best will come your way. And, and, and I started to think, why does he give, what is up with my algorithm? What is, what is a, my family searching on my internet that this keeps on coming? I need internet filters and family safety things to keep out his business from our internet. 
But, but I realize it's, it's because Romans 8, all he does is like he quotes something from Romans 8 and anybody can do this. False, false prophets and false preachers can do this. Romans 8 is just so full of good blessings and promises. They can say something and then just tell you what it, it falsely, what they think it means, but it almost sounds true. So, so, so it's been my experience that counseling people and meeting with you and having coffees and, and then preaching, one of the, the biggest difficulties that we sound Bible-believing, gospel-loving, mostly reformed people have when we come to a, a passage like Romans 8, our biggest problem is daring to believe the good news. We're more on the back foot going, yeah, you know, I mean, gospel and God's judgment and bad things happen. And we're easy, we find it easier to camp there rather than daring to believe the unfathomable riches of God's grace for us in life. You are more than a conqueror. And I say all of that to say this, what does being a conqueror mean? Well, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that I take you by the hand and I say, brother, sister, you're a child of God. You're a conqueror. Say, turn to your neighbor and tell them you're a conqueror. Don't do it. I'm making fun of those pansy preachers who do that. But, but what does it, does it mean then that as a conqueror, you won't see sickness, you've conquered it. You, you won't see financial downturn, you've conquered that, brother and sister. You won't see those, those many things which come against the, 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 the people on the outside of God's blessings because you're a blessed one. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a blessed one. Not at all what it means. Not at all would it. Being a conqueror in Christ does not mean that we do not see assailings against our souls. It means, and do I even have to explain this? Isn't it quite obvious? That to be a conqueror means you go into the fray, you go into the battle, you're just never found losing. And losing in what sense? Losing in the sense that your faith will never be destroyed and you will never be, be stolen from the Father's hands or from the safety of refuge in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean your bank account will remain full, your clothes will remain on your back, your head will remain on your shoulders. The guy who wrote this had his head lopped off. He called himself being offered out as a drink offering upon the altar of Christ. It's like his blood is the wine, his head is the, is the cork, and as it's popped off, he will be poured out before God on the altar of the Roman beheading block as a drink offering to Jesus Christ. He's going to lose his head, and he'll still say that in that moment, he is a conqueror. Here's what the, the essence of this promise means. It, will mean, it means that you will be victorious over every enemy and appear before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ with great joy. It means that you will overcome them though they attack you and they will. It means that you will make it to heaven and after heaven as Jesus recreates the world you will appear in glory with great joy or as Paul said in 2 Timothy 4 the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's, that's the meaning here. As a conqueror you will be attacked, you will suffer, you will sustain a faith through that, and you will make it to heaven. Now, now we've, been, we've been saying as we went through Romans 8, we recall from Ephesians 6 the warfare that the, the, the wages in this life and, and that rages as a storm and a tempest against the church. We understand the spiritual warfare we're interlocked in is, is it's internal, it's personal, it's external, it's intrapersonal, it's, it's spiritual, it's physical, it's political, it's relational, it's social. There's the, the warfare against the Christian is, is in every type and every stripe, and yet every single one of them will fail to destroy your faith. Not a single 
enemy against the Christian will prevail. There will be destruction, loss, and peril, and none of them in your life will destroy your soul. There will be temptation, you will give into it. There will be deception, you will be fooled. There will be allurement, and you will follow it at times, and yet all of those things, though momentarily successful, will fail to destroy your salvation. Your strength will equal your battles. Charles Spurgeon spoke in his autobiography, and he was speaking with friends, and they were recounting all the stories of the covenanters and the Puritans who, who had their heads lopped off, their arms ripped from their bodies, drownings uh, over and again under the persecution. And, and they were recounting to each other, these brother pastors and Spurgeon, and, and these guys were saying, mate, I, I reckon if, if that was me, I, I'd run. I, I don't know if I would have the courage. And other pastors sitting around the table said, oh, if that was me, I'd, I'd be there. I'd be there for it. Bring it on. I'm, I'd love to have a sword swing over my head. I, I think I'd stay fast. And, and Spurgeon sort of gave the, the much wiser and and, and write down the middle answer. He says, I do not now have the strength to face the gallows. But I know that if I was told today that tomorrow at 1 p.m. I would be hanged at the gallows for my faith, then I know that tomorrow by noon I would have the strength. Some of us might fear and go, I don't know if I've got the faith to make it through a, a, a life a, a risking persecution. You go, well, well, that's because you're not in a life-risking persecution right now. But I know on the merits of the promises of God that if you were, then you would have what you need to go through it. There's, there's a, a great verse from Deuteronomy 33 that says, as your days are, so shall your strength be. Whatever your day entails, there God's strength will meet it and overwhelm it. And John Fawcett, a hymn writer, took up and he wrote a song, Afflicted Saint to Christ Draw Near. It goes like this, based on, on that verse. Afflicted Saint to Christ draw near. Thy Savior's gracious promise hear. His faithful word declares to thee that as thy days your strength shall be. Let not thy heart despond and say, how shall I stand the trying day? He has engaged by firm decree that as your strength, as your days, your strength shall be. Thy faith is weak, thy foes are strong, and if the conflict should be long, thy Lord will make the tempter flee, for as thy days, thy strength shall be. Should persecution rage and flame, still trust in thy Redeemer's name. In fiery trials thou shalt see, that as thy days, thy strength shall be. You are a conqueror by the promise and firm decree of the Father stamped in the blood of Christ. You will conquer. But he says more, doesn't he? He says we shall conquer, but he also says that we are more than conquerors. In verse 37, in all these things, death, persecution, nakedness, rotting in a Roman cell, whatever it may be, he doesn't just say we're conquerors, he says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this means that over and above what we've previously said, despite all of the enemies and all of the attacks on you, your soul, your church, your family, your life, despite all of them, you will not just make it to heaven, but you will have made it to heaven having taken ground for the kingdom and having positively glorified God in the process. In other words, you are not 
a liability. By the power of the Spirit in you and the power of the merits of Christ's blood over you, you are not merely a liability that God hides in his knapsack until he gets across the line of eternity and then pours you out and dusts off all of the, uh, all of the sand and says, oh, gee, I'm glad I didn't have to use that person on the, on the playing field. <laughs> You're not that. God, by his spirit, is telling us that not only will you make it to heaven, but you will make it to heaven with laurels and a crown and gems and military stripes on your shoulders because such is the reality of all those that God has purchased. He's purchased us to make a dent in the kingdom of darkness. He's purchased us in order to glorify him positively. Even our sins will glorify God. Even your sins, Christian, will, be not because of you, not because of the merit of sin, but because of the sovereignty of the Christ who reigns and prays for you, even your sins will redound to the glory of God. Because the, as the Christian repents of them, as the Christian confesses them, as the Christian returns to, to God like the prodigal son, their God is glorified as being the redeemer and the forgiver of sinners. Even your, your difficulties and, and your trials, they will glorify God because through them you endure and you prayed for God's strength, even they will glorify God. Or your persecution, and maybe even your martyrdom, as you take the gospel to the nations that still don't declare Christ as Lord, and know his saving gospel, as you go as a missionary and die as a martyr, even then you are extend, extending the kingdom through all of it. Or as you suffer mockery and derision in the workplace, as you seek to speak the name of Christ to your colleagues, even that is extending the kingdom, and not just getting to heaven safely, but getting to heaven having been more than a conqueror. Right? Everything that came against you, yet you were able to positively glorify God and extend the kingdom. You will be rewarded equal to the battle that you, that you, that you waged in, that you fought in. As, as even in uh, human militaries, as you come home, you'll, you'll be decorated. If you were sent over, you don't even have to be engaged in active fire to be able to come home in the Australian military and be able to be a decorated veteran because you were sent. How much greater is God able to reward and decorate his soldiers that he sends through warfare in this life? Every single one that you have faced, every single thing that you've been put through will be rewarded. William, William Wallace, uh, a, a Scottish freedom fighter for the independence of Scotland in the, in the 1200s. There's a, there's a great imagery and analogy that comes out of, out of his life. He and the, and the Scottish army were, were arrayed at what has been called one of the, the famous battles of, of Stirling Bridge in Scottish history, the, the Battle of Stirling Bridge. And, and King Edward was, was there with his army and, and there was a, a, a small, a small two-horse wide bridge that, that crossed over the, the river to get to the castle of Stirling where the Scots had arrayed themselves out on the yard. And, and the much grander, the much vaster, the much more powerful English forces had arrived on the other bank and, and had spent a few days and even up to a few weeks deciding how do we get across? How do we get there? What do we do? And, and it was uh, in desperation that they finally ended up uh, uh, sending an assault against, uh, sorry, across the, the very thin bridge. Now, this is the genius of Wallace and, and the, other, the, the other generals, that they had sort of cornered the English. If they wanted to make their trip up from London worth it, if they wanted their soldiers to not die of starvation in the field, they had to cross that tiny little bridge. 
Now, before they had come over as an army, the, the, the English had sent over some, some, some emissaries, some let's try and talk this out, uh, let's try and get the Scottish to surrender because, because we don't want to go through this battle. And William reputedly responded with this, we are not here to make peace, but to do battle, to defend ourselves and liberate our kingdom. I wish I could do it in the accent, won't do it. We are here to defend ourselves and liberate our kingdom. Let them come on and we shall prove this to their very beards. What a taunt. And so it was that, that they, they ended up sending their armies against, uh, across Stirling Bridge. And the genius of the Scots was not that they stood there at the bridge and defended it, but that they let half of the English army come across just enough that the Scots knew that they could defeat and then they sealed off the bridge. So they only had to battle against the, the portion of army that they could overwhelm, and they did. Thousands of the English were lost. The, the, there was many Scottish lives lost, lost, and yet they were overwhelmingly victorious. Now here's the cool part. There was a bit of a personal feud going on between William Wallace, Sir William Wallace, and the treasurer of the English army who had been living in Scotland called Sir Hugh de Cressingham. Just a jerk name. Like, you hear that name, you hate him, he's a bad guy. Sir Hugh de Cressingham, and here's William Wallace, and, and Cressingham was actually taken in the battle. And he was killed, and he was beheaded, and then he was flayed, which means his skin was derobed of his body. And it's, it gets good, it's alright. And, and then his skin was turned to leather, and William Wallace took that skin and made scabbards for his sword and shoulder straps for his shield. How good's that? What's wrong? Why, why are you squeamish? This is great. That's what William Wallace did. Now, now here's where we see the gospel. You ready for the, for the connection? That, that in our battles, even as we have waged and lost blood and, and whatnot, it is from those very battles that the Lord takes the skin, the, the losses, the very bodies of the enemies which sought to destroy us, and he turns it into laurels. He turns it into shoulder straps for us. That, that every, every, every primary school age boy knows this. That, that the scar hurt to get, but there's a story for it afterwards. And you're always able to impress the girls with the massive scar you've got. And, and every guy knows this, that when there's a, a huge head-on collision or a bleeding nose or whatever it may be, like there's pain, but there's the story that'll come with it. And there's always a little bit of joy for the, for the man that there's going to be able to, to tell the story of how this great scar arrived. And so it is with our trials. Every one of them that comes against you will leave you with something, a, a stripe of the military reward. A reward coming from the God and King of Kings, Jesus Christ. A, a shoulder strap and scabbard for your sword made from the skins of your enemies. Friends, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God will receive more glory, not despite the struggles we go through as Christians, but precisely because of them. This means that when we... When we cringe, when we whinge, when we cry and complain against the difficulties in our life, though God is gracious to hear our, our moans and our prayers, yet if we turn against them in bitterness, what we are really desiring deep down is that God would be satisfied to get a little less glory if it means that we have somewhat of an easier life. The kingdom will have grown larger because of the trials that we endure. We are rewarded more grandly in glory because of the attacks against our souls. That means that calmness and tranquility, or a life 
exempt from distress, will lessen all of these things. That, that's what we're asking for. Uh, less glory to God, less growth of the kingdom, less souls saved, and less rewards in glory. No Christian thinking by the Spirit, no Christian with their head screwed on right will really and truly pray for those things. In light of that, who would ever remove a single trial from your life? Suffering Christian, that means that if someone near you is dying, if you have received the, the horrible prognosis, if it's your family on the rocks, if whatever it may be, whatever suffering you're going through right now, Jesus knows it. Not only knows it, but he, he acutely designed it for your life so that he might work his own likeness into your soul. So that he might craft another gem to go onto your crown in heaven. So that he might be able to give his father even more glory with a more completed kingdom. As gold in the fire is more purified by every degree of heat that the oven has turned up, so also your Christ-likeness and your own soul is purified greater and greater in proportion to the heat of the battle that comes against you. And therefore, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, it's important that we look at the basis of this. We're more than conquerors because Jesus prays for us. We are, we are more than conquerors through all things that come against us. But why? Is it because of the strength of your faith? Is it because of the purity of your love? Is it because of the constancy of your obedience? Absolutely not. Verse 35 and verse 37 and onwards through to 39 tell us that the basis of the conquering reality, the basis or the cause of the victory that we enjoy is the love of Christ and the love of God. Verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It is not our love to Christ, but Christ's love to us, which is the constant permanent power. Will your love and will your faith and will your obedience falter? Yes. But they will never so falter as to leave you de-unified to Christ, uh, in broken relationship or covenant with Christ. Your faith as a Christian will never so falter that you can say, I have no trust in the merits of Christ's blood. I have no resting on the promises of God. I have no sustenance from the word of God in Scripture. You will never be able to say that as a Christian. You might fool yourself and, and, and verbalize it, but it will never be true. As a Christian, your faith will fail and stumble and fall short, but it will never fail to such a degree that it is no longer saving faith. Your faith will continue because of his love to you, which never separates and which never severs the cord of union. Look at the, the list of things that, that Paul writes to assure us that nothing can sever the love of Christ to us because it is not an earth born chain. It does not go up from earth towards heaven. It comes down from heaven towards us. It's like trying to chop a, 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 a hanging chain from the bottom and expecting that it'll fall back to the roof. All you can do is, is touch the bottom end of it. You, you cannot stop that. It descends downwards towards you. And so it is that there are many horrible seeming things in life, but not one of them can reach high enough on this chain of love from Christ to earth that it can actually 
find it and sever it at its root. It is in Christ that this love is born and therefore it is indestructible. Verse 38. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers nor things present or things to come, things that aren't even around yet, the next technological advance, the next uh, a war machine that rolls on, the next great nation, kingdom, or empire, or tyrant, the next whatever it may be, we don't know. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. Now, now at this point, often the, the one, the, the weary, the, the hopeless, the, the, the fearful Christian usually says, okay, nothing out there can separate me from Christ, but since it's my faith that unifies me to Christ, I, what about me? Can't I, at the, the lowest ebb of my spiritual walk, from, from, from callousing my soul and from, from faith, faithless living and, and not going to church enough and all these things, surely I can get to a point, and this is the, the basis of my fear, that, that eventually my faith can fail. I can choose to walk away from God and thereby sever my relationship of salvation. And, and at this point, Paul just, Paul just sits us down and reminds us that, friend, you're a created thing. Your will, your thoughts, your beliefs, your opinions, your patterns, all of those things are non-eternal. They are not God. In other words, you're not God. You're not a created thing. And Paul includes you in this list when he says, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us. Don't you realize that you are not in the slightest in control of your salvation? Like as, as, as Jesus told Peter, he told him, the devil has asked me that he might sift you like wheat that he might put you in the sieve and throw you out as rubbish with the rest of, the, of that which comes away from the wheat. That's what he wants to do to you, Peter. And, and as if ourselves in that situation, we, we want to imagine Peter saying, okay, and, and you said that he wasn't allowed to. Or you, you said to get out of here, Satan. Right? What did you say, Jesus? And Jesus' response is, is that Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but when you return, strengthen the brethren. He says, but I have prayed for you. This is the case of every Christian. We know the devil is literally asking right now to sift every one of us and destroy us if he may. And Jesus' encouragement is not that he says, but I told the devil to lay his hands entirely off the church. Rather, his answer is, he will attack, he will burn, he will shoot, he will strive to destroy, but I have prayed for you. Don't you realize that Jesus is in complete control of your salvation Therefore, nothing that comes against you, not even yourself which comes against you, your conflicting thoughts, will, or failing faith, not even those things are in control of your salvation. You have received a salvation from the love of Jesus Christ. You have not contributed to it, so you cannot wipe it or fail it away. It is the everlasting, permanent love of Jesus that assures our salvation. But it goes on, do we see it is the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord also. Verse 39. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is not just the love of the second person of the Trinity. That Jesus welded up and he came on down to save us from the Father. But rather, it was the Father who had eternally loved and therefore sent his Son. In Christ we see infinite love, but it is merely the manifestation of that love which originates eternally and infinitely in the Father. Therefore, 
The Father's love and the Son's love are one and the same. Never, never, ever believe the lie that God loves you because Jesus died for you. It's a lie. Jesus died for you because God loved you. It is a display of his love. It did not earn his love. It earned his forgiveness. It earned his atonement. And yet, but his, his desire to have us and to save all those that he had chosen has been around since before the foundations of the world. In eternity past, the Father is there with an electing love. In, 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 in sending Christ, there is a sending love. As we lived our unsaved lives before coming to faith, there was a patient love. In, in giving us new hearts, the Father displayed a transforming love. Through our weakness in our life and our ongoing sin, we see an enduring love. At every moment of the Christian's existence, there is a treasuring love of the Father over you. In the moments of sin, there is God who delights to give a forgiving love. In the moment of our glorification into Christ's image at the end of time, there will be a transforming love and in all of eternity, there will be a permanent love. Octavius Winslow says this, uh, the discussion between the Father's great love and Christ's love. He, he looks at Christ's love as it, as it shines to us from Romans 8. And he says, the love of Christ, such is our precious theme. Of it we can never weary. Its greatness we can never know. Its plentitude can we ever fully contain? Never. Its depths cannot be fathomed. Its dimensions cannot be measured. It passes knowledge. All that Jesus did for his church was but the unfolding and expression of his love. Traveling to Bethlehem, I see love incarnate. Tracking his steps as he went about doing good, I see love laboring. Visiting the house of Bethany, I see love sympathizing. Standing by the grave of Lazarus, I see love weeping. Entering the gloomy precincts of Gethsemane, I see love sorrowing. Passing on to Calvary, I see love suffering and bleeding and expiring. The whole scene of his life is but an unfolding of the deep and awesome and precious mystery of redeeming love. And so the hymn writer S. Trevor Francis says this. We sing this song here. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love, leading onward, leading homeward to your glorious rest above. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread his praise from shore to shore, how he came to pay our ransom through the saving cross he bore. How he watches over his loved ones, those he died to make his own. How for them he's interceding, pleading now before the throne. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, far surpassing all the rest. It's an ocean full of blessing in the midst of every test. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, mighty Savior, precious friend. You will bring us home to glory where your love will never end. This is the love of Christ that will not let us go. This is the love of God incarnate which will not let you go. And if you're outside of Jesus right now, if you're an unbeliever, if you're still living in your sin, 
And you know nothing of the freedom of heart, of the, the joy and the liberty of the soul that comes from placing your faith in Jesus and having forgiveness over your sins and having uh, freedom from this bondage to sin that you now suffer in. Then the one thing that God requires of you is to look to Jesus who died and was buried and was rose and recognize that in all of that, God is satisfied with his law and his justice. God is delighted to receive a humble sinner to be forgiven. Simply look to Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, how unfitting and inappropriate every ounce of doubt and fear we have ever, ever, ever sweated seems to be in light of these promises in Romans 8. Who shall ever bring a charge against us? Who could ever condemn us? Who could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Who could separate us from the love of Christ? None of these things listed or a million more imagined. Nothing that has not even come into existence yet. Absolutely nothing that has existed since the foundations of the world. Nothing can separate us. Nothing can remove from us the promise of sure and certain blessings that have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Father God, would you give us the faith to believe and drink down deep those good promises this evening, that the worrying and the fretting and the stressing Christian would find their heart at peace in the hands of him who prays for them that the, the guilty and, and, and filthy-feeling Christian would recognize and, and see their conscience clean in light of the one who died and bled for them. Father God, would you uh, uh, certify to us and assure us of all of the wonderful future blessings yet to be poured out on us, as well as all of the wondrous charms that you have given to us in this life. Would you make us sure in the life, the death, the resurrection and the ruling and reigning of Jesus Christ for us. And Lord, if there is any who still at this moment, despite the hearing of the wondrous love of Jesus, still stand away, still refuse to humble their hearts, Lord God, would you break them? Would you break down their souls and break down their hearts to make them call desperately on the name of the only one who could save them? God, please give forgiveness, give new life, and give re regeneration to these souls. Lord, we pray all of this on the merits and on the basis of Christ who lives and reigns. We pray in his name. And everybody said. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.